The concept of Hesed in Hosea was presented by Carl Kinbar on August 5, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute. Reunion to Knock and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. This is the handout for both of my talks, this and next hour. And because mostly we'll be looking at our Bibles, which I thought was a good idea, and also at specifically Hosea and the Gospel of Matthew. But I want to start off with a couple of scriptures. The only two scriptures that weren't used earlier today, the only ones that were left for me after all those, actually about chesed, there are actually 250 occurrences of chesed in the Bible. It's uh, very well-used words, and it speaks of both God's chesed and human chesed. And in most cases, it's, the word is used, but it's not defined in any way. And so one of my task is to define it contextually within Hosea. But I just want to start off with two scriptures from the Torah, from the first five books of Moses, which sort of lay the groundwork for it. And they're reproduced on this handout. The first one is Exodus 34, 6-7. This is when Moses is on the mountain receiving the Torah, and God actually comes down and stands, stands with him on Mount Sinai. And God says that he abounds in chesed and truth, who keeps chesed for thousands. And this is one of his essential, this is one of his attributes. This is, one, this is who God is, not just in part, but in full. And there are other aspects that are also God in full. So this is the baseline for chesed. It's not something that God simply chooses to do or does out of obligation or gets an idea at a certain point in time to do. It's who God is. And that's where chesed ultimately flows from. And some translations of the word chesed, in addition to the ones that we read this morning, some of them, are uh, love, unfailing love, steadfast love, loving kindness, goodness, gracious love, loyal love, goodness again, compassion and kindness. And I think there was also mercy and faithfulness and loyalty from this morning. This is a word that in one sense is very difficult to translate. You can't translate it with one word. But the fact that all these words seem sort of related to each other, don't they? They're not just radically different translations, and they all capture something of what chesed means. My advice, of course, is for you all to learn Hebrew, read the Bible in Hebrew, and then we won't need to do any of this stuff. (laughs) We'll know what chesed is. But the first thing I want you to do is to learn how to pronounce just one Hebrew word. Chesed. Okay. Did anybody not participate in that? Okay, because it's not chesed. It's a different, actually, Hebrew letter, chesed. And I have my own, I have a definition of chesed, which is more of a Hebrew-English, not a translation, but a definition. And that is, it's God's zeal for the well-being or wholeness of all that he has created. And the acts, 
of chesed that arise from his zeal. So the concept of zeal is actually essential to chesed. Even though it's not translated that way, it indicates the urge to do something. And my own word, which I've forgotten I actually put on my outline here, is the word big-hearted or big-heartedness. And I tried this out with the discussion group this morning, and it seemed to work okay. But I want to explain what big-heartedness means. Chesed has an internal and an external dimension that are totally tied to each other. That somebody who has a heart of chesed will do acts of chesed. So all those words, love, unfailing love, some of them like love seem to be more maybe internal. Not necessarily. It depends on how you define them. And none of these words really grasp or express the dual nature of chesed. Now, big-hearted would seem to also express, you know, just the heart, the internal. But if you've ever met a big-hearted person, you know that it's not just a way they feel. But a big-hearted person is somebody who will extend themselves toward others and uh, help them, whether they call or not. (laughs) But in other words, you know that within their ability and reason, they will help out another person in need because it comes from their big heart. It's a heart that makes room for other people. And it's something you can sense about a person by being with that person, and it's not a contractual obligation that they have, or only something they feel they ought to do. And there's nothing wrong with doing something that you ought to do. But when you're with this kind of a person, you know there are no internal barriers. They're not doing it begrudgingly. They're not measuring out what they're going to get in return for being kind or good or meeting a particular need that a person has. And the thing about God is, he is big-hearted by nature all the time, always. And that is his motivation toward his people. Now, God, unlike us, can see when he needs to sometimes radically withdraw his blessing as an expression of chesed, because ultimately that will draw somebody, or Israel in particular, toward himself. If Israel is simply blessed and blessed and blessed, as God did for hundreds of years after telling them you must obey the Torah or you won't be blessed, he blessed them for hundreds of years until he finally withdrew it in order to make them aware of what life is like without God's blessing because his ultimate intent, his his big-hearted intent was to bring Israel back to himself. And that's the whole, that's the story of Hosea in a nutshell. But, of course, I have another few minutes to talk, so I will spend a little more time on that. The book of Hosea is not organized chronologically. It's maybe within small sections it's chronological, but if you go from one to the next, you find that you're constantly going back to the beginning again. And I'll give you an example from Hosea chapter 1 in verses 8 to 10. Gomer conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people, for you are not my people, and I'm not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And this is just a brief snippet. You find this thing being repeated again and again, sometimes with very, very strong indictments of Israel's behavior. And usually the chapters of these cycles begin that way. And I want to give you, I'm going to skip over the Hosea 2 example because I want to go into that at length. And just look briefly at the Hosea chapter 3 example. It's only a brief chapter. And it begins with 
the Lord saying to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Fast forward five verses. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And you see this again in the cycles that I have down there. Then starting in Hosea 7, you have four chapters of just indictment against Israel. And then you begin to see the redemption and the renewal in about 10 verses down into chapter 11. And again, there are more and more cycles. But as we saw in Hosea 11.1, it goes all the way back to Israel being brought out of Egypt, which is way, way earlier than all that. So the beginning portion indicates Israel's dire condition. Then the middle portion, depending on how large it is, is, uh, indicates God's response and what God is going to do about it. And then the last portion is Israel either turning to God or God wooing Israel back to himself. And that is the pattern or the cycles of chesed in the whole book. So the title of this talk is the concept of chesed, not just the word, because the word only appears six times in the whole book. And almost all of them are about Israel's chesed or lack of it. But God's chesed is evident by his intention toward Israel and doing whatever is necessary, whether through centuries of patience or a period of deprivation, to bring Israel to her senses and bring Israel back to God. And this, of course, is Hosea's mission to speak these things. So I want to go back to chapter 2 and look in detail at how God's chesed works out in practical ways in this book in detail, because it's just, it's not, Hosea is not a pretty story. It's brutal, actually. It's brutal. I, I think I said this the last time I was here. I said, you know, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. The sins of my people for centuries and millennia are laid out for everybody to see. I don't know of any religious literature, I've never heard of one, that exposes the sins of the followers of their god or gods in this way. It's terrible. And being a Jew, I feel it. And um, couldn't we get a break? We don't catch a break in Hosea because Hosea is showing God's chesed in a situation in which there is nothing on which to base it in the reality of Israel. Yes, there was always a remnant. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, as Elijah was told. That was to the same northern kingdom 100 years earlier. I don't know whether that 7,000 is a, a constant number or not, but there's always a remnant, but the remnant is not spoken of in this book. It just looks very dire, except for the fact of the saving grace of God's chesed. So Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. The chapter starts off with uh, the prophet, or God speaking of Gomer, and then it shifts in verse 8 to Gomer becomes Israel. And this shift takes place in other places in Hosea, and then one place, Jacob, the person becomes Jacob, the people. And it just happens from one verse to the next without particular warning. So verse 8 is actually the beginning of this passage. She does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, probably in worship in some way, adorning themselves in worship. So God was giving Israel the grain, the new wine, the oil. These are symbolic of the broader blessings. And they're oblivious to the fact that it comes from him. They don't realize it. And then down to verse 12, it says, I will destroy your vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. 
Her lovers are the Baals. You see this elsewhere. The idol, she believes that her service of Baal, or the Baals, result in wages from them, which is these blessings, the vines and the fig trees, that actually come from God. So it's not enough that her worship is totally patterned after Israelite worship, but with God removed and the Baal put in. But now, because she does that, she believes that the Baals are paying her these wages. So this is great. I took this pattern that was given to this guy Moses a long time ago, but it's very flexible. It can be used for anything. You can worship anybody with this pattern. And so we're going to worship Baal, and he's rewarding us this way. He's been doing it for some time now. Everything is fine. Well, I don't know exactly. I can't say God's patience runs out, but there's a time when God's judgment takes precedence over his patience. And here, it's, judgment isn't the right word. I'm going to use a different word in a minute. So, going back to verse 9, this is God's response to the situation. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my wine in its season, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sights of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festival assemblies. These refer to Mosaic worship except without God. I'm going to remove the gaiety involved in these things. They were enjoying themselves. They were getting blessing. They were worshiping, and they had joy in what they were doing. So all those things are not signs of approval by the Lord. And he says, I will destroy your vines and and her fig trees. Going down to verse 13, the translation here is important. You might have something like, I will punish her for the days of the Baals. I will visit on her the days of the Baals. The, the word is a pakadati, or yifkod, and it means in the same way that you will visit the sins of a person on another that, that happened during a period of time in Israel's history. What it means is that God will take the days, the kind of life that she would have experienced worshiping the Baals all that time, and give Israel that. It's not that he's sort of dreaming up a punishment. But he's visiting on her exactly what she would have gotten had he not been blessing her the whole time. So it's a withdrawal of blessing, and it's obviously a serious thing. So I will visit on her the days when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me. Big thing. She forgot God, wiped from the memory. And of course, this took some time to happen. But at that point, she had forgotten God. But there's this fantastic transition between verse 13 and 14 with nothing to account for it other than God's chesed. Therefore, look, I will allure her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak to her tenderly, literally to her heart. And the wilderness is, in the Bible, classically a place where God speaks to people. It's a time of isolation for the sake of God doing something. So I will allure her somehow into this place of desolation, not simply so that she would experience wilderness living, so to speak, but that she would hear what I say. And he continues. He says, Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Echor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth. So he's now he's going to bring her in to this place and speak to her and bless her as he did before. And what has she done in between him taking away the blessing and promising to restore it? Nothing that's recorded here in this cycle. 
as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So here we see the first mentioning of Israel coming out of Egypt in this book, long before chapter 11. These were days of joy that God intended to renew in her by bringing his blessing back. And it will come about in that day, when I do that, that Ishi, my husband, and you will no longer call me Baali, my Baal, as if I were an idol, basically is what he's saying. So she was addressing the one God as if God were Baal, not simply a name, you understand, but an identity that she was speaking to God in this way. And then verse 19, skip down to there, I'll betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me with righteousness and with justice and with chesed and with compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Now chesed is one of the four items of betrothal. These are betrothal gifts, which in the Middle East and in in Jewish custom and law are usually very symbolic uh, things of small value that you give when you ask for a woman's hand. And the reason they're of small value is so that the poorest person can afford them. It's not because the act is thought to be of little value, but it's symbolic of your desire to betroth the woman. And if she chooses to accept it, then you're betrothed. You're not actually formally married, but it's as if. It's as close as you can get. It's not like being engaged in our... It's not broken off. It's a prelude to marriage. So God is going to do all these things starting from ground zero, basically, with Israel. Of course, there's nothing in Israel that really would seem to cause him to do this. We'll see that there's some other things going on at the same time. But what is the purpose to betroth Israel, to bring Israel into this relationship, and that she would know the Lord, which always means experiential knowledge. In other words, that she would know God, relate to God, cleave to God knowledgeably is what it means. And that's the goal in all throughout Hosea, all these cycles, always the thrust of all of them is that people would return to God, Israel would return to God, not just to be forgiven and renewed and to get things better, but in order to know God. That is the goal, consistently the goal in Hosea. In fact, we see it in Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God and not burnt offerings. That's one verse with one verb, I desire, that applies to both the chesed and the knowledge of God. The two are integrally tied to each other. So this is God's goal in chesed, to bring Israel back to himself by any means necessary. So these four gifts, one of them includes chesed, and these four gifts are obviously not gifts of minimal value for betrothal. And you see in the, uh, the Tanakh is that chesed is associated with these other concepts and also with Truth. Is truth one of them? No, chesed also associated with truth. You find chesed and truth, chesed and faithfulness, chesed and compassion, and all these things because it's a complex of ideas that are associated with each other. They're not just isolated words and concepts that God acts this way and then this way, but he offers these gifts in faithfulness, meaning that he's not going to take them back. And then verse 23 And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God, which is more or less the way chapter 1 ended, when God said, in the place where I said you would know people, I will call you the people of God. So again, the cycle ends with God and Israel being God and people. So I think the next, uh, and I'm going to go through two more passages here, or or three, depending on how you count them. The next one is chapter 4, 
And I'm just going to read uh, the beginning of the passage in the first two verses and then the end of it. And this will help us to see what chesed is for human beings. Not God's chesed, which is limitless, but human beings, which is a little different. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness, no chesed, no knowledge of God in the land. So you have three things. Faithfulness, continuing in whatever you're doing, whether it's giving gifts to betrothal, doing chesed, knowing God, whatever it is, it's an ongoing reality. So there's no chesed and no knowledge of God. And I don't think this is an exaggeration. I think it's meant to be a correct assessment. But what is there? Verse 2. There is cursing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, breaking all bounds, like there are bounds in the Torah and in all sorts of societies. There are bounds. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. So what there is is the opposite of what God desires. So cursing, what's the opposite of cursing? Blessing. So to treat others with blessing is part of chesed. Lying versus truth-telling. So that's part of chesed. Murder, sustaining life, doing things that benefit life, that nurture life. Stealing. There is a, an example, I can't think of the quote. I think it's, it's in the New Testament, but it's something like no longer steal but give or something like that. Does anybody know that? Okay, thank you. Right, exactly. So laboring to have something to give, that's the opposite of stealing. The opposite of stealing is not not stealing. In fact, the opposite of all these things is not simply not doing them. Chesed is not negative, it's positive. And committing adultery, faithfulness towards whoever you're committed with, but especially towards God. And keeping within bounds, and certainly not killing bloodshed, following bloodshed. This, this relates to a command, a warning in the Torah that says that there's one thing that will surely cause Israel to be expelled from the land, and that is bloodshed. Because as soon as the blood goes into the ground, the land itself becomes stained. So when you have bloodshed after bloodshed, you're talking about this happening on some sort of regular basis. It's very, very serious. But So we can contextually define chesed by looking at the opposite of everything that Israel was doing at the time. And if you can just imagine a society at the extremes, imagining, imagine living in verse 2, or it's opposite. And in the study group this morning, people were commenting, well, in some senses, we are living in. Uh, I don't know if it's this extreme. This is getting close toward the prior to the flood. It's getting close to it, but not quite. Not quite. There, there was a total lack of... Mm, I'm going to let that one go. <laughs> That's another point. Okay, so, um, so this is the beginning. This is God's indictment. And then if you go to the end, to chapter 5, and verse 13 to 15, when Ephraim saw his sickness, that's a key thing, saw, and Judah, it's understood, saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Yarab, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wounds. So they see they're wounded. They see they're sick. And the implication, the contextual understanding of this is they're sick both because of the lack of God's blessing and they're wounded by the prophet's words that's said elsewhere. So they send to these other countries or people, can't cure you. And the Lord says, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. 
I even I will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place. It's like, I'm just going to sit and wait somewhere else. But then it says, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So this is a little different picture than we had in chapter 2. He removes his blessing and allures Israel into the wilderness. Here, this seems more of a description of what actually is happening and that God actually is waiting to be sought at this point. And that's the end of this cycle, which leads us into Hosea 6. And this is the last one or two cycles, however you look at it. Because in our group this morning, and according to the original handout, the question was, does the verse that Jesus is citing in Matthew start with verse 4 and end with verse 11, the end of the chapter? Or does it start in verse 1 and end in verse 11? Because verses 1 to 3 is probably the prophet speaking, exhorting Israel, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. This is not a prophecy. It's, It's an exhortation. This takes place after God has torn and injured through the removal of blessing and the words of the prophets. He would, he will heal us, and he is as reliable as these things, as the dawn, as the spring rains. He will come to us to heal us and to bind us up. But then all of a sudden, we have God speaking through the prophet, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? So this may be a response to the previous exhortation, or it may be a separate passage. I think they're related to each other. It's about all I I can say about it, and I'll try to make sense of that in my talk next hour. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your chesed is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire chesed and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Before I go to the rest of the passage, every example of sacrifice, which including two mentions of burnt offerings in Hosea, is idolatrous. Every one. Some of them are offered on the hilltops or in one of the two centers that Jeroboam established long before in Bethel and Dan, but they're all offered to Baal or the Baals. Every one of them. And the concept they had in mind was that when they do these things, they offer these sacrifices, which also, by the way, involved cult prostitution, that the gods will be pleased and give them the reward of blessing, which is why they thought that the blessing they had enjoyed all that time came from the Baals, the wages, their wages from the Baals. So their concept of sacrifice was in the wrong place to the wrong god with the wrong attitude of heart and with the wrong conception of what sacrifice actually accomplishes because within the Torah, sacrifice does not bring wages from God. That concept simply is not found anywhere. The reward from God does not come from doing these particular things. And so their practice and their concept and the location and everything about their sacrifice was idolatrous, which I think is an explanation of why we have I desire these things but not sacrifice. It's not that God is saying, well, I'm doing away with the Torah now. Even though this is a big part of the Torah, it's not going to be part of this anymore. You don't have to go down to Jerusalem, which is the only place where you can offer sacrifice and do that. 
is that right now you have no idea because if you engage in sacrifice now, and of course there are different explanations of this, I understand. This is just my take on it. You can accept it or not. That this was not the time for them to say, oh, now we've got the right place down in Jerusalem and we're going to offer sacrifices to God and so he'll give us our wages now sort of thing. I don't think that's what God had in mind for them to do and I think that's what he's saying there and I think it's consistent with the other prophets as well. But So God desires these things but we learn in chapter 4 verse 1 that Israel doesn't have either one. I desire chesed in the knowledge of God. It says they didn't have faithfulness chesed or the knowledge of God. They don't have any. And the passage continues chapter 6 verses 7 to 11. But like Adam or Adam or a man They have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed a crime. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you, And then all of a sudden, when I restore the fortunes of my people. So again, we have at the end of this cycle, a restoration that will take place for Israel, which all comes from the chesed of God. So I'm actually not going to answer all the questions that Ron posed for me this morning or some of the others exegetically about that passage. But I want to point out what's happening in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, and then verse 4 to the end. It's again this cycle of either indictment or God's action of uh, visiting of the days of the Baals on Israel. And then in the end, the certainty of God's responding to Israel, turning to him, and God restoring the fortune of his people. And of course, verse 6 is the first part of verse 6 is the one that Jesus quotes in Matthew 9 and 12. And I believe that our understanding of this chapter and the context in the book is like essential for understanding what Jesus is saying there. If we don't look at it, we will inevitably misunderstand what he was trying to say to the Pharisees on the two occasions when he quoted that chapter to them. So I think, okay, I actually have written a conclusion. In Hosea, we see God showing chesed to Israel by his zeal for their well-being or wholeness and the acts of chesed that arise from his zeal to bless or withhold blessings, to wound, and to heal. And in Hosea, we also see Israel's chesed, first by contrast with their mistreatment of one another, and then in the image of God's desire for them. One day, they will have a heart of zeal for one another's well-being or wholeness, and do acts of chesed that arise from their zeal to bless and to heal. Israel's chesed will not be to wound and to tear, That's something that is not a part of human chesed. God must do it, we must not. And so this is the concept of chesed in Hosea. There's time for some questions if you have them. Okay, any questions? Yes. You said there were other concepts kind of like Esther that captured God in full, kind of off topic, but could you? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. Exodus 34. I said the chesed is not just one part of God. When he's talking about that he has chesed, it's all of God, but there's other things that are equally all of God. God is not broken into parts. Exodus 34, 6. So the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed and truth, 
who keeps chesed for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generations. The fathers and generations are plural, so I understand this is generational things, when a generation sins that's passed on. I don't think it refers to individual fathers. It could. I don't think that's what's being said here. He's speaking about his relationship with Israel here. And Moses bowed down. So he's slow to anger, compassionate. He has chesed. He's not sometimes slow to anger, sometimes compassionate. He's all of those things all the time, as I understand. Yes? Just a background question for you that doesn't speak to what you were talking about today, but in Charlie's introduction yesterday to Hosea, he said that in, I think it's in Hosea 3, when Hosea is called again to marry an adulteress, he said that that, it looked as though that was probably a different woman. I had always just assumed that it was the same woman who was still running around on him, and somehow or other my sensibilities are offended by Hosea taking two different wives. But mm-hmm. do you have any opinion as to... I, I do agree that's what Charlie said, and that's what you believed. That's what what? That's what you believed, up to the, and you're offended by it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't answer that question. I had never thought of it that way before. But looking at it again and doing a quick Google search, there are others who have said the same thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, You uh, refer to God's providence as going in cycles and periods. He withdraws his hesed and then he returns. Do you have any big-heartedness for the apparently lost in those periods of withdrawal? I'm not saying that it's cycled chronologically. I'm saying they're all describing aspects of one Scene, which is not specified exactly how long it takes, or this is the way God will act towards them. I'm thinking in worldly, chronologic fashion, and you're leading me against that. Yeah. I'm trying. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, no, that's a good answer. That helps me. When you were referring to Exodus 34, would this be the 13 attributes of God? Are there 13 there, or is it another passage where there's a numbers passage which is similar to it? Okay. And would there be more attributes than what is written here, then? It would be in the numbers passage. I'll be frank. I usually don't count. Fair But, I mean, perfectly legitimate to do that, but I haven't compared them in that way. Yes? You said there were four betrothal gifts? Yes. Can you specifically state them? Simply? Sure. I have to go back because it depends on your translation, right? There are four betrothal gifts, and Sharon would like to know specifically what they are. In what language would you prefer? (laughs) I should have stayed in Hosea. You understand that the Hebrew Tanakh is not in the same exact order as the Old Testament? And so I get messed up because, first of all, it's going backwards, what we call backwards, forwards and forwards and backwards, so I find myself turning in two different directions at the, at the same time. Betrothal gifts, chapter 2. Hosea, yeah, cha- Hosea chapter 2. Okay. Righteousness, justice, chesed, and compassion. And then in faithfulness, which is sort of like the, I'm not going to take them back, they'll always be offered to you. Well, the chesed is the third of the four. Faithful, it's a separate, I will betroth you to me with these things, and then in faithfulness. Although 
to be full disclosure, the Hebrew preposition is identical in both cases, but it's a separate phrase, so it's being, I think it's being used to include all the other four. Speaking about God is not going to, like, here they are, oh, you know, I'm taking them back, sort of thing. They're, he will always, he's extending these things until Israel accepts them, and they are betrothed. Which, by the way, is going to be just a fantastic day. Just think about it. It's going to affect the cosmos, my friends. So, any other questions? Or are we... You got to ask all your questions this morning. I don't know if it's... So, my hearing's still a little bad. So, I didn't hear in your final statement. Were you describing as well what hesed means for... Not for God, but for yeah, yeah, a person? Both. Could I hear that again? Sure. I, in Hosea, we see God showing chesed to Israel by his zeal for their well-being or wholeness and the acts of chesed that arise from his zeal to bless or to withhold blessing, to wound and to heal. In Hosea, we also see Israel's chesed, first by contrast with their mistreatment of one another and then in the image of God's desire for them. In other words, what God desires is chesed. One day, they will have a heart of zeal for one another's well-being or wholeness and do acts of chesed that arise from their zeal to bless and to heal. So you're seeing their chesed as having that kind of zeal that God had toward each other. It's not toward God, it's toward their fellow. Right. In the 250 mentions of chesed in the Bible, there's only one that can possibly be construed as Israel or anybody else having chesed towards God, and that's sort of a metaphor or an analogy that's being used. So God is not looking for, God does not have a need that requires chesed, but he, he gives it out. Which passage? I didn't give you a passage for that. It's, it's somewhere in my notes. It's in Jeremiah someplace. You can let me know when you find it. So I think that's, oh. I have one, one more. I get the last one, I think. In the range of meanings that you've described is the notion of covenant loyalty, which I would understand to be from Israel, from the people to God. It's on that one, I think, the answer is. So my question is, just in that range, since you just mentioned that it's rare to see examples of Israel's hesed towards God, I would have conceived of this as that. Trying to find it in my notes. I understand why chesed is thought of and sometimes even translated as covenant love. However, there is at least one major exception to this, and I would be so happy if I could find it. But I can't. Okay, it's in Ruth, book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 8. Where Ruth, she went to Moab with her husband and two sons. They married Moabites' wives. The men all died. And so Ruth is going to go back. Excuse me, Naomi is going to go back. And Ruth and Orpah, she's encouraging them to stay. Go back to your your people, etc. Well, what she says is, May God do a chesed towards you as you have done towards the dead, the departed. In other words, while the men were living, they did chesed toward the men. But the thing is, we know that Orpah never committed herself to the God of Israel or the covenant, and Ruth probably did so at that point, just after that. So the word chesed is used of somebody who grew up in an idolatrous culture, who was in some sort of possibly intermediate state of not having committed herself to God, and yet she's described, the two women are described as doing chesed towards these three men. You could say it's related to the covenant because they were in the covenant, the men, but 
they themselves were not expressing covenant love in the way that we speak of the covenant. So that may be an exception, but it gives me pause for thought about defining the word that way. 